John 13, verses 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Uh, so I've, over the last few weeks, uh, we've been sort of teasing out uh, the good news of, of Christmas. The good news of, of Christmas, that hope is here because of Jesus Christ. Real and lasting hope. Not just temporary hope for like hard situations that, 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 that we go through and our, and our families go through, but real and lasting hope. Hope for the weary and for the broken. Hope for the suffering and the oppressed. Hope for the lost sinner like you and me. In other words, hope for the hopeless. And we've seen over the last few weeks how, how Jesus, God's son, is really the one that we've all hoped for all along. He's the one that we've longed for all along. Uh, to borrow the words of C.S. Lewis, who, who said that, you know, if we each have a deep sense in us that something is not right in this world, then it's probably because we were made for another. And in the Christmas story, we learn that Jesus has come to bring that world down to, to, to us, to where we live, to bring the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of God's kingdom down to earth. That's why we pray on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus brought that down to us. That was his mission. But now... Now that we're on the other side of sort of celebrating the, the good news of hope coming at Christmas time, now, now what does that mean for, for us going into the new year? What does Christmas mean for every season, for every season of life? What does this epic Christmas love story of God pursuing us when we were unlovable, what does that mean for us now? And this, this morning, we'll turn to the Gospel of John to see how God now calls us uh, to be marked by the love that he showed us at Christmas. My two-year-old son, Haddon, he thinks, he thinks that uh, like the Disney store at, uh, at, at the mall or that like downtown Disney with all like the Disney logos and all that, he thinks that that's like Disneyland itself, right? Which uh, seems to me like, like uh, uh, which for me is like, a, it saves me a lot of money, right? Uh, uh, but also for him, he's kind of selling himself short, right? I mean, we took him to, to, to Disneyland for the, uh, the first time where he was like kind of old enough to actually like appreciate it just not too long ago, uh, just a, a few months ago for, for him and his sister's uh, birthdays. And... Um, and his mind was blown. He's like, now he has this whole new, new picture, this whole new category, what the joy of just being at Disneyland as a little kid means. And if we limit our idea in the same way, if we limit our idea of what church is supposed to be about, of what Christianity is, 
If we limit our idea to what Christianity is all about just to this hour and a half that we spend together on Sunday morning, or if we limit discipleship, like what it means to follow Jesus, to kind of what, what, what pastors and leaders do like up front here at the, in the stage area, if we, if we limit ourselves to the, that kind of perspective, then we're selling ourselves short too. We're selling ourselves short of what it means to be the church, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be impacted by the Christmas story. You see, church and Christianity and the good news of Christmas hope is an all-of-life sort of thing. It's an every-season sort of thing. It's one that, that, that impacts our lives with the love of God and then pours out as we love others. And so we're going to kind of tease that out more by looking at John chapter 13, a few verses there. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, open up and turn to John 13, verses 31 through 35. Um, before we dive into this text, I want you to realize what's just taken place. Here in John chapter 13, Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry. All right, and he's in the upper room, this sort of area called the upper room with his disciples, his like inner circle of followers, and they're eating their last meal together. You may have heard this called the Last Supper, right? So this is happening at the Last Supper, and and some crazy sort of gnarly stuff just went down at this point, right? Like first of all, right before our text. Jesus calls out Judas Iscariot as the one who would, be, who would betray him. He calls him out right there while he's in the room in front of all the other guys. Jesus calls him out and says, you're going to be the one that's going to betray me. And then in front of the other 11, Jesus tells Judas, tells his betrayer, now what you're going to do, this whole betraying me thing that you're about to do, he says, go do it quickly. And then at that point, Judas leaves. Kind of a crazy, intense scene, right? Like kind of unsettling that the 11 disciples, it's like at this point in the story, they haven't quite figured out what's happened. It's like they just sort of get this uh, 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 whiplash, like what just happened? And that, at that point, right after the whiplash is when our passage starts. And again, the main question we've been asking throughout this Advent Christmas series is how did Jesus bring hope to the world? How did Jesus bring hope to the world? And today, we're going to look at how Jesus came into the world to bring, ultimately, love. And that those of us who are followers of Jesus should now be marked by this love. So let's read the text, beginning in verse 31. John 13, beginning in verse 31. We'll read it again. I want you to notice sort of the, just the gnarly intensity in the language here. Uh, it says, when, when he, this is Judas, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. He's speaking of himself. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Jesus continues, and he says, little children, speaking to his disciples, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where am I going, where, where I am going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, 
I want you to notice something here, right? Like the language is, is, is in this passage is kind of a intense, right? He uses a lot of now language, right? He says, now this, now that. Uh, Judas at this point is gone. Just these 11 disciples are left. And Jesus now turns his attention to something new and important. He begins speaking some of the heaviest truths now that in the entire gospel of John. Now that his betrayer is gone, now that Judas kind of skirted out the door, Jesus is now addressing those who will be now faithful to him to the end. For the first time with these, this 12 group of guys, the betrayer is gone. For the first time, his true disciples, his true disciples who will finish faithfully are right there alone with him. And what he says now what he chooses to say to these 11 will prepare them, not just for his death, which is less than a day away at this point, but for what will come after. He's preparing them for their mission. And what he tells them about their mission will tell us more about his mission and our mission today. And so what he tells them uh, is, is why he came into the world. Now, Three observations I want us to see in this text. The first observation is that he places a priority on love. That's our first point. He places a priority on love, the priority of love. And we, the reason we see that he, he, he give, makes this a priority is because he calls it a new commandment. He says, look, there's a new commandment. If, you, if, if you're like kind of a, even just a, 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 a casual sort of, if you have casual Bible knowledge, you, you probably know that like uh, commandments are a big deal, right? Right? And Jesus says, look, I'm giving you now a new commandment. He's placing a priority on this command to love. Now, another way that we know that there is a priority of love in this commandment is, is first that he begins with the word now. Now. Now, in other words, when he uses that word now, that's, that, that's his way of saying, this is the time. This is the time. This moment. This is the now. The time for what? It says the time for the Son of Man, which is Jesus himself, to be glorified. And Jesus says, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. It's a lot of glory talk, right? And Jesus, who's always careful when he chooses his words, describes this moment that he's about to give him the new commandment. He describes this moment as sort of one big glory fest, right? We see from the, just that verse right there. At this moment in history, Jesus is saying the Father and the Son will be glorified together before God's people. His purpose in human history, Jesus is saying, is about to unfold. This hour marks the moment of his glory. And in that context, with him sort of preparing them for that, in that context of all the things he could say next, he speaks to them about love. Tells us there's a priority he places on love. Another reason we see a great priority in this command is Jesus calls his disciples in verse 33, little children. You see, up until this point, 
Jesus never addressed his disciples, at least from the written record. He's never addressed his disciples as little children. But now he does. Now is an appropriate time. You see, when, when John opens his gospel in, in, in John chapter 1, I, I want you to, to, to read what, he, what it says about Jesus. Read really quick with me. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. The true light, it says, this is talking about Jesus. It's using a metaphor here. It says, the true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's the Christmas story, right? Light has come down into the world. Verse 10 says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. We rejected him. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So now take that passage, fast forward to John chapter 13. And when it says that, that right here, when it says that all who receive Jesus and believe in his name, only they will become, have the right to become children of, of God. In John chapter 13, when Jesus calls his disciples, my little children, we recognize that just a moment ago, he couldn't say that, right? Because Judas was there. Just a moment ago, he couldn't have said my little children because Judas did not belong to him. Judas belonged to the enemy. So now with Judas gone, Jesus can say, my little children. This shows that, that this statement, some things are only meant for God's children. And so that's another important statement that he places on the priority that we have to love. Next, in verse 33, uh, is, is sort of, sort of the, the, the last uh, uh, reason that we see he places a priority on love is that uh, he, he tells them that he's going to be leaving them soon. Verse 33, read, with, read it with me. Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. That's his way of saying, I'm going to be gone from you soon. He says, you'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's talking about his death. His disciples haven't quite grasped this point yet because in their mind, the Messiah is like, he, shouldn't, he should never be able to die. But Jesus is telling them, he's, he's, he's got the, Judas is gone, his children are there. He's saying, little children, yet a little while, he says, I'm going to leave you soon. And where I'm going, you can't come. So they get the news that he's leaving them. Now, this would be like earth-shattering news to the disciples. you got to put yourselves in their shoes, right? They left their entire lives behind to follow Jesus over these last few years. They knew Jesus was the promised Messiah, but they thought, just like everyone else, that the Messiah was going to be like this strong military leader who was undefeatable and untouchable, somebody who would recapture Israel with military might. That was sort of the, the, the rumor going around amongst the Hebrews, that that's the kind of Messiah Jesus would be, and that maybe they would, uh, they, they were thinking, you know, like maybe, maybe when Jesus comes, maybe when the Messiah comes to his rightful place, that they would become like his high-ranking officials, high-ranking military leaders with him. But here they are, now in that upper room, at the end of an awkward meal, They've been following him every day for the last few years, enduring a lot with him. And now he says to them, I'm leaving you? 
in a little while, I'm going to go somewhere and you can't come? Like imagine the, the disappointment they must have felt. Imagine the disappointment that, that must have felt. It would have been like if like a, a group of you guys are on our, our, our original launch team when, when we started this, this, this church, or you joined our church like over this last uh, year that we've been around. And imagine if, um, if like I kind of like took you all out to dinner tonight and said, look, like I'm, I don't think I'm going to do this much longer, right? Like I don't know if I'm going to do this church thing much longer. I'm just going to take off. And I don't want you guys to come with me, right? Like, you just do your thing, but I'm going to take off. You'd be like, dude, what was all this for, right? You'd be like, what were we doing this whole time? Like, I I thought we were planning this this church together. And that's the kind of feeling that the disciples felt. They're like, what what was all this for? What were we doing this whole time? I thought we were going to take over Israel. I thought we were going to be on this grand mission together. And so with all these things considered, just the priority that Jesus places on this moment, when he says, now is the time, he says, I'm going to leave you soon. You can't come with me. I'm going to leave, right? Little children, he calls them. With all these things considered, we see this is a huge turning point in their conversation. This is a huge turning point, not only at this meal at the Last Supper, but this is a huge turning point in his relationship with his disciples. There's something intense happening here. There's a shift now in Jesus' priority. And the first thing that Jesus utters from his mouth after he sets up the importance and the intensity and the gravity of this moment The next words he utters is this, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. A new commandment, he says. They're on the edge of their seats in this intense moment. And he tells them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. So Jesus is saying, look, up until now, people know you are my followers just because you actually, like, literally follow me around. But now, Jesus says, I won't be here, like, physically in the flesh for you to follow. Following me, he says, physically will not be the mark of a disciple anymore. Following me in person, in the flesh, will not be the mark of discipleship anymore. So I give you a new mark, a new commandment. He says, love each other as I have loved you. And Jesus calls this a new commandment. This is something that we clearly need to pay attention to. Now, what does he mean when he says this? What is he saying? What is this this new commandment to love one another? You see, the priority is the command to love one another, but then he gives them a pattern to follow. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. How are we to love each other? Just as I have loved you, Jesus says, you also are to love one another. So, The obvious question for us at this point is to ask ourselves, what did that look like? 
What did that look like? How has Jesus loved them? If we want to know how we're supposed to love each other, then we need to ask ourselves, how how did Jesus love them? Which leads us to our second observation, the pattern of love. The pattern of love is Jesus himself. To answer the question, what did the love of Jesus look like? We need to observe Jesus himself. We need to observe Jesus's life, his posture, his mission. So let's look at what John has written about the love of Jesus. We're going to kind of jump around in the gospel of John to look at, to look at what John has written about the love of Jesus. What has he recorded? What has John described? What has he highlighted? What should come to our minds when Jesus says to love just as I have loved you? How has he loved his disciples and how now does he call them to love one another? And so Here's a snapshot that John's gospel gives us. First, we read already in John chapter 1 that the love of Jesus is present. It's present, right? Remember when we read about how like the light of the world came down uh, to, to us, right? Like Jesus came in the flesh. He put on human flesh at the incarnation to be with us. You may have heard like around, around Christmas time, you know, we, we hear this phrase, Emmanuel, right? We sing this name, Emmanuel, which literally means what? God with us. Jesus' nickname, Emmanuel, literally means God with us. The love of Jesus is, is present. He didn't love us from some far-off cloud or from some, like, ivory tower or from some church office. He, he, he came out, and he, he came down, and, and, and he was with us. He was with people. So that's the first thing that, that, that we see is that the love of Jesus is present. Secondly, we see that the love of Jesus is purposeful. There's something in, in his, that his love is seeking to accomplish. Think with me about the story of, of, of Lazarus, right? Like Lazarus. Did I say that right? Yeah, Lazarus. Uh, John chapter 11, Jesus announces his, to his disciples that, that Lazarus, one of his friends, is, 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 is dead. He's dead, and he, he's sad, and he says, you know, Lazarus is, is dead, and he must be revived to life. Read John, John uh, chapter 11, verse 14 with me. It says, And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Talking about when Lazarus died. He says, so that you may believe. But let us go now to him. Now, I want you to, 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 to sort of dig in here and see what Jesus is saying. He tells them, for your sake, these disciples... For your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Why was Jesus glad? Why was Jesus, the one who could keep Lazarus from dying, glad that he wasn't there when Lazarus died? He says he's glad because now they will believe. Now that they will, now they will be with him to witness his miracle when he raises Lazarus from the dead. His power over death, his great miracle that he of the resurrection, that he has the power to overturn death. He wants his disciples to see that. He wants them to believe that. 
You see, Jesus knew that for them to believe meant eternal life. Eternal life. Because John 3.16, we read it earlier, it says that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish, but will have eternal life. That's what Jesus wanted for them. He wanted his disciples, his little children, his true followers to taste eternal life with him. He wanted real blessing for them. He wanted that for them because he loved them. You see, the pattern of Jesus is a purposeful love. He wanted them to see Lazarus rise so that they would believe. He wanted them to believe in the power over death so that they would have eternal life. You see, the pattern of Jesus is a purposeful love to seek the spiritual well-being of those who are around him. Thirdly, we see that the love of Jesus is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. We see in John chapter 1 that the love of Jesus comes at a great cost to him, right? He was rejected, as we read earlier. He was despised. Jesus gave up his life, not just on, not, not just on a cross, but he gave up his life of glory in the heavens when he was born in a manger. Do you realize what a sacrifice that is? Jesus' life on earth began with sacrifice, was marked by sacrifice, and ended with sacrifice. The sacrifice involved when someone who was with God and was God takes on human flesh, and that's a great sacrifice. Philippians 2 helps us color, color that in more, just the sacrifice that Jesus took on during the incarnation. Reread these few verses in, in Philippians 2 with me. It says, though he, speaking of Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is that not a sacrifice of love? Like throughout his entire life, every second was a sacrifice that he made for our good. What defines sacrificial love in the incarnation is first the fact that he emptied himself, right? Like he was God, but he set aside his divine rights to be free from all abuse and suffering, and he laid that aside out of love. It says that he took the form of a servant, so he didn't give up being God, but he did become a servant. He didn't shed his godness, his divine nature, but he did take on a, a human nature. He became not just a king, but he became a servant king. He was born in the likeness of men, we just read. Last week, we, we talked about how, like, if you saw Jesus in all of his glory, like in all his beauty and all his brightness, then that would just knock you to the floor. Because when you see something so beautiful, like when you see the grand, something like a giant canyon or a massive waterfall or just a beautiful piece of art, anything that you find just overwhelmingly beautiful, you just have to adore it. It has to floor you, right? Like it's just so glorious that the only resp proper response is just awe. All that makes that would give us a response of awe before Jesus, like he came without any of that. 
He came in the likeness of men, likeness of you and me. And it says he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, not just lowering himself into a manger, but also into the grave. His love is sacrificial from beginning to end. And lastly, I want us to look at how the love of Jesus is patient. The love of Jesus is patient. How many times did the disciples show themselves to be weak? I mean, think, think about the, the gospel narratives, right? About how the disciples just spent this time with Jesus, and time and time again, they just kind of kept fumbling on their words and on their actions, Right? Like, they just seem to be so thick. And, and like, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark over this last year, and we keep seeing how uh, uh, his disciples uh, are, are just so, so, they show themselves to be slow, to be dull, to be unfaithful. Like, how often do we read a scenario in the Scriptures where Jesus is teaching some great truth, and the narrator says, but the disciples did not understand you see, that shows us that the love of Jesus is so patient. For three years, they did not understand who he was and why he came. We saw this, we see the, the glimpse of this in John chapter 1. You see, Philip, one of the disciples, approaches a man named Nathaniel. And I want you to read about it really quick in, in, in John chapter 1, just two verses. It says, Philip, who is a new disciple of Jesus, found Nathaniel. And said to him, we have found him. He's talking about Jesus. He says, Nathaniel, we have found him, Jesus, of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, this Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So basically he's saying like, hey, Nathaniel, like you've got to meet this Jesus of Nazareth. And then it says, verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, but can anything good Come out of Nazareth, which scholars say is a pretty sick burn, right? Because back then, like, I mean, Nazareth was like this, 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 like, nothing good came out of it. No elites came from there. Um, there it was, Nazareth was known for its, its poverty. It was known for its unimpressiveness. And so Nathaniel says, has anything good come out of Nazareth? And a few verses later, Jesus meets Nathaniel, calls him out on his prejudice, and what follows is remarkable. Not hate, not anger, but love. Jesus immediately starts to tell Nathaniel that he's going to see great things by following Jesus in his lifetime. Nathaniel, at that point, becomes a disciple. And you see the tender patience of Jesus, even when he's getting hated by a complete stranger that 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 is just meeting him. We see the patient love of Jesus all throughout the Gospel of John like this in his interactions with like the Nicodemus the Pharisee, his interactions with Peter the Apostle, his interactions with Philip the Apostle who was slow to understand uh, when in, the, in, the, in the acts of Peter the Apostle and then Thomas the Apostle who doubted and then Peter the Apostle and and in, and in Peter the Apostle, like if you know anything about the story of Peter, you know that Peter's notorious for his mistakes, right? Peter's notorious for his blunders, yet Jesus still loved him. He was patient with him. 
Jesus loves us even in our weakness. He loves us even in our doubts, even in our shortcomings. You might be here like this this, this, this morning or, or coming back to church around the Christmas season like a lot of people do and just thinking like, man, I just don't feel like I'm, I'm, I'm good enough to be a strong Christian or I've still got questions. I'm still working things out and my life is a mess. But we see in the patient love of Jesus that, 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 that Jesus loves us even in our weakness even in our doubts, even in our questions, even in our weaknesses and shortcomings. Why? Because his love is patient. It's patient. There is more love in Jesus than there is sin in you. There's more love in Jesus than there are doubts and shortcomings in you. Jesus is not surprised by your sins. He's not caught off guard by your questions. He's not surprised by your brokenness. He knows that they're there. He's God, right? That's why he came. He came because the mess is there. He came to save you from them. His love is pursuing, it's present, and it's patient. So back to our original question, what does the love of Jesus look like? It's present, it's purposeful and intentional. It seeks the spiritual well-being of others. It's sacrificial and costly, emptying, it's so, emptying himself so that others can have fullness. It's patient and long-suffering, faithful to the end. Do you see how beautiful and how, how great the love of Jesus is. This is the new commandment that he gives. This is the new way, the new standard, the new pattern that will be embodied by the new community of Jesus that he was forming at that moment. The community that was being ushered into existence at this time in history, the church. So because Jesus loves with a present love, with purpose, with sacrifice, and with patience, we now love one another with our presence, our purposefulness, our sacrifice, and our patience. Now, how in the world will we ever be able to love like this? I mean, maybe as we're going through that list, right, like to be present with people, to be, to be uh, purposeful, to be sacrificial, to be patient, like you're already thinking of times just in the last couple of weeks with the craziness of the holiday season that you have fallen short of that, right? You're like, how in the world can we, we ever perfectly love like this? How can we ever actually muster up the will and the power to love with presence, with purpose, to love self-sacrificially and to love with patient, long-suffering? I mean, truly loving others in those kinds of ways just does not come naturally, right? Because naturally, we're not present, right? Naturally, we're not purposeful and sacrificial. We're selfish. Naturally, we're not patient. We're impatient. So where do we get the power to love like Jesus does? Where do we get that? 
the same place we get the power to do anything in the Christian life, the gospel. The power to love comes from the gospel. You see, and that's the good news for us this morning, that Jesus doesn't just give us, he doesn't just display for us and show to us a pattern for love, but he gives us the power to love like him. That power comes to us through the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? We read it earlier in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The gospel is this. God so loved us. God so loved you, even in your sin. Even in your weakness, God so loved you. He loved the world so much that he gave his son Jesus to be born in a manger just so that he would die on a cross. Jesus did not come to serve as a model to follow. He came to serve as a savior to cling to, a rock of ages. That is how this works for the true follower of Jesus. That is how the Christian life works for the true follower of Jesus. First comes the forgiveness of Jesus. Then we can live out the pattern of Jesus in the power of Jesus. We see this in the last verse of our passage, John 13, verse 35. Remember it? Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's saying, look, the reason for all of this, the reason for all that I've been doing with you, the reason for all of this, this, this love is so that people will know that you're my disciples. So he's saying, you must first be a what? A disciple. If you want to love each other the way that Jesus calls us to, Jesus says, this way, by loving people this way, people, others will know that you are my disciples. And so Jesus is saying, look, uh, if you want to, 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 to love others that way, you need to actually be a disciple first. You need to be a follower of me first. You must first be a disciple. You must first be changed by the gospel. That's what a disciple is. A disciple isn't somebody who just follows Jesus and walks in his ways. A disciple is somebody who follows Jesus because they've been changed by him, captured by his love, redeemed and renewed by his hope. Remember, Jesus was not addressing the original 12. He was addressing the 11, his true and faithful followers, the little children, he calls them, knowing that only they would have the spiritual power to love in this way. You see, our love for one another is not a badge of our commitment to Jesus. It is a sign of Jesus' commitment to us. You see, we don't love one another to show others our commitment to Jesus, but it's to show others his commitment to us. Christian love is a banner 
of Jesus' love for us. You and I, we need that love. We need the love of Jesus. The world, it needs that love. It needs the love of Jesus. Every single one of us, we're all broken. We're all weak. And in different ways and in different degrees, we're all broken. And yet, when Jesus deals with us, how does he do it? With love, with kindness, with mercy. Only because we have experienced this love from Jesus towards us are we free to extend the love of Jesus toward others. And two wonderful things will happen when we love one another in this way. When we allow the love of Jesus to so change us, to so just enrapture our souls and impact us that it spills out into loving others, two wonderful things happen. First, this love fills up the church. It fills up the body of Christ. How beautiful would it be if this church community was known for how much we loved one another, with how present we were with each other, how patient, how sacrificial, how enduring and purposeful. And that would be beautiful. It would show others, not just that we love each other, but as Jesus promised, it will show others that Jesus loves us. That's the second thing, is that this love is noticed by others. First wonderful thing that happens is that this love fills us up as a church. The second thing is that this love starts to get noticed by others. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. He doesn't say, look, people will know you're my disciples by the way that you vote. But what, how, by how, what a good person you are, right? By the bumper sticker on your car, by the caption on your Facebook profile. No, he says, look, others will, 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 will know that you're my disciples, that you're my followers if you have love for one another. Others will observe this love, and Jesus says that that love will speak for itself, and it will speak of him. It will point to him. This love will ultimately glorify him because we will display the present, purposeful, sacrificial, and patient love of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Those of us who have tasted the good news that we've been talking about this Advent season, those of us that have tasted the good news that hope is here, we now have the privilege of displaying that hope and our love towards one another. Why did Jesus come? He didn't come to fix our problems. If he did, he would have said, they'll know you're my followers because you have no problems. Right? He didn't come primarily to fix our problems. He didn't come primarily, I mean, to make us rich. He didn't, if he did, he would have said, look, they'll know you're my followers because you're loaded. Right? He didn't come to make us popular. If he did, he would have said, look, they'll know you're my followers because you are like... Uh, influencing on Instagram, right? <laughs> Two million followers? That's how they'll know. No, Jesus 
Instead, he says, they'll know you are Christians by your love. Why? Because he's the savior of love. He came to love the world. Followers of Jesus love because he is a loving savior. He came to rescue broken creatures back into a loving relationship with our creator God. And so I want to close by urging you this morning to savor the love of Jesus this Christmas season. All right, as we put a, a wrap, a final bow on just the, the Christmas, the Advent season, and move into a new year, savor the love of Jesus for you and set out to live a life that magnifies that love as we love one another. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.